Yes. Traded over here because of a Sanchez success. Here's a ground ball right side. Could do it. The Houston Astros are world champions for the first time in franchise history. <laughs> From the artificially chilled to 68 degrees studio in Buffalo, New York, this is Steve Bennett, the host of the Sportscasters Podcast, back after a summer hiatus. Uh, the last year or so of this podcast has been a bit up and down, and anyone who's really stuck with it, I appreciate. I kind of, in my head, feel like there's about six or seven listeners left, and now's the time to rebuild it. Uh, but if you're one of those still out there and you've stuck with this, I really appreciate that. Uh, I did a podcast uh, in May and June and was kind of getting back into the swing of of doing these and figuring out the new era of the show. Don obviously isn't really able to be here every single week and, and be a part of the show like he was in the past. Although I talked to Don this week and he's welcome to come anytime. And he actually might do a show in a few weeks uh, that's centered around a guest, which I'll talk about in a minute. But in the post-Don era, I've, I've sort of struggled to figure out, you know, what is the show and what do I want this show to be? And is there any reason to still do it? You know, when we started in 2011, this was an open, an open medium. You know, there was a few podcast obviously Carollo is doing his thing and there was the BS report and you know there was this podcast here and this podcast there but there was guests I would reach out to who had no idea what a podcast was at the time you know and now I just read there's over 700,000 uh, registered podcasts on Apple and I sometimes wonder if we're 600,000 on that list you know and I wonder, is there an audience? Is Am I talking to myself? Does anyone want this? Is there any reason to do this? And, you know, booking is hard. It's, but, I mean, when you have a, a podcast that's centered around guests, that means you have to book guests. You know, I don't get very many emails from publicists begging uh, to have their people on the podcast. We do get books in the mail, um, but we don't often get a publicist who's like, look, I represent... I represent Peter King, and, and, and he's got to get on that, that Sportscasters this summer. If you can just get him on, you know, that'd be great. Uh, the reality is it's me emailing and texting and hounding and waiting for responses because, and I've said this many times in the past, you send out an email and there's two likely outcomes. One, you'll get a response with someone who's willing to do it and you'll work that out, or you won't hear from the person you emailed. Um, there is someone, I'll, I'll just say it, Robert Mays from, uh, not Grantland, but Ringer. Uh, I had had Robert Mays on right around this time, I think in 2016. 
and we had a great interview, and I enjoyed having Robert on. And you know, we hung up. Yeah, let's do it any you know anytime. Reach out, and you know, I would reach out. He would write an article. I'd reach out. I wouldn't hear back. I'd write an article. I wouldn't hear back. And then Brian Curtis, who's an executive editor, was on the show, and I said something to him about it off the air. I said, you know, man, Grantland was such a great, accommodating site. I loved working with everyone at Grantland. I haven't had the same experience on Ringer. You know, I haven't been getting emails back because that wasn't the only example of someone who I had reached out to and not heard back from. And then suddenly, a few days later, I got an email saying, you know, hey, I missed this. I'm so sorry. I'll come on any time. Uh, and now fast forward to now. And again, I've emailed, I've texted, and I, I hear nothing. So this is kind of what you deal with. And I don't mean to put Robert out there. That's almost not fair. And I apologize to him because he was very nice and very accommodating. It's just an example of how hard it is. And I'm sure that Robert is busy. You know, Tom Verducci, who I've emailed and not heard back from, he's busy. He has other things to do. There's He's got 35 podcast requests. It's not like it was in 2011 when I was maybe the only podcast request. Now he has, these guys have 25 podcast requests and they have 35 radio hits they do. And they're writing their columns. They're writing their books. They're writing for their website. People are busy. So where do I fit in? That's the question I'd ask. Where does the sportscasters land? Because I can't just write emails and emails and emails. It's it's hard. And also I can't just have the same guests over and over either. I have to always try to find someone new. You know, I want to have a one debut every other week or one debut every month. So I kind of took the summer and I reflected like where where does this podcast fit in my life as someone who's married, who has a child now, who is battling a chronic disease on a daily basis? Where does this podcast fit in? And where do I fit in in the sports media? And I guess what I discovered is, one, is I, I love this show. You know, I created this show. I've done all the writing for this show. I've booked every guest who's ever been on this show. You know, when you look at 2014 Sports Illustrated and you see the podcast awards that year and see the sportscasters as an honorable mention for podcast of the year, you know, I feel like that's something that happened because of my hard work, because I earned that. And I do think the work that I do in this room is is usually pretty good. You know, I work really hard. When I, I take seriously those emails, when I ask for someone's time, I take that seriously and I make sure I'm prepared to speak to them. So... You know, I guess what I discovered is that I do want to do this. Uh, and I want to do it for five people or 5,000. That doesn't really matter to me. I, you know, it never really has, to be honest. Numbers isn't something I've ever tracked. You know, we've had some success and we almost ended up on Sirius XM in 2011, but then the entire station uh, became defunct. So just the news of us possibly being on that station was enough to put it out of business. And then we signed a contract with Football Nation. We were doing a contracted show that we were getting paid to do in 2013. And then, of course, at the end of the year, I had my health problems. We couldn't finish the contract. You know, I went down during the NFL playoffs. 
I was in the hospital from January 28th until February, uh, excuse me, March 14th. So since then, I feel like I can't reach out to someone and say, hey, put this podcast on your network because I'm gun shy. What if I do make an agreement with someone and then I go down again? So I've been careful of that, you know? I tried very hard when Sports Illustrated started doing podcasts to maybe see if we would be a viable option there, and they didn't really seem to have interest in bringing anyone outside. They were still figuring it out. So, you know, this podcast is never going to be something to wrestle or the BS report or pardon the take. I haven't really made a dollar yet. I'm probably not going to make a dollar tomorrow or any day soon. But I've loved doing it. And I think the work is valuable. I think the interviews have been good. The feedback is usually good. I've had a chance to interview Joe Buck and Richard Deitch, develop relationships with guests like Jeff Perlman and Jeff Passan. So it's worth it. And it's fun, and I'm going to try to do it at least three times a month. So that's kind of where I stand right now. Now, today's show, we have, in a second, when we take a break, I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk to Stuart Mandel. Stuart's someone who's been with us since season one. Since 2011, when Stuart was at SI, he's been coming on this program. When he moved to Fox Sports, he came on this program. Now he's at The Athletic. He still comes on this program. We're going to talk 30 minutes I did with Stuart talking about college football, talking about the athletic. I have some things I'm going to update in the book club. Then we're going to talk to Ben Ryder. Ben Ryder's been coming on this show since 2012, 2013. When he wrote his original article on the Astros winning the World Series in 2017, we talked to him that week. And now he's coming on today uh, to to talk about his book Astro Ball, which kind of evolved out of that article. Uh, so we have those two on. I'll finish with one last thing like I always do. Also, we have some stuff. I have some stuff planned out. So I said if I'm going to come back in, I want to have a bunch of stuff. You know, if I can stockpile six, seven interviews, great. So this is what's coming up. Jeff Perlman's going to be on the show. We're going to catch up with Jeff Perlman. Those are always Interviews, I have no idea where they're going to be. Jeff Passan's going to come on the show. The very first guest of this podcast, Jeff Passan's going to come on after the Major League Baseball trade deadline. We'll talk Major League Baseball with him. Uh, Aaron, Schatz, uh, excuse me, Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders is going to be on this podcast. We'll talk about the Football Outsiders Almanac like we do every August. Okay, also Max Olson from The Athletic is going to be on this podcast to talk about Last Chance U. And we have a huge guest that I have. ESPN PR has promised me a huge guest. Uh, someone who covers fantasy football for them and has 950,000 followers on Twitter. Hopefully we'll be on this podcast soon. There's a fantasy football marathon coming up there. Uh, ESPN PR thought it would be a good appearance to do to promote that. So hopefully that happens. I have emails out to Robert Mays. I have emails out to Dan Wetzel. I'm sure I'll hook up with Brian Curtis. 
a lot of this stuff in August. We'll be previewing the NFL, getting anyone I can to talk NFL, college football in here. So I'm rejuvenated to some degree. I'm excited about the show. If you're still with me, thank you. Again, I in no way meant to kind of put Robert Mays on blast. Maybe I shouldn't have said his name, but it was just an example. And again, Robert did nothing wrong. Um, It was just me kind of trying to show you how hard it can be to book a podcast because, again, Robert and I have no, you know, it's not like he came out and hated it. You know, I don't think that's the case at all. You know, I think the reality is in 2018, again, people have 30 podcast requests, 30 radio show requests. They're writing for their, they're writing their columns. They're doing their TV hits. People are busy. It's harder to book people. But I actually have developed a bit of a talent for it. You know, that's the one thing you've been able to count on with this show is that there's going to be guests. You're going to have heard of them. They're going to be good. I can book this show. So I'm going to focus on booking this show, doing good interviews. I'm going to work harder on my one last things. I think that those can improve. All right, I'm going to work harder on my introductions. You know, sometimes I don't think the interviews are enough. There needs to be a little bit before and after. I'm going to make sure I'm tracking down the best sports books. I'm going to have copies to give away. You know, anyone who's been a fan of this show for any significant amount of time has probably gotten a sports book for me. And if you haven't, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. I'll send you something out. I got stuff on the bookshelf right now I could send you. Jim Florentine's book is still here. If anyone wants a copy of that, email me. So, that's where I'm at today. July, end of July 2018. Eight seasons into this show. And uh, I'm a bit rejuvenated and excited about whatever can come forward in the future. With that said, let's start. Uh, I'm going to take a break and come back with Stuart Mandel from The Athletic. Our first guest today is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and is a graduate of Northwestern University. He's been coming on this program since 2011 when he worked from for SI. We followed him over to Fox Sports 1, and today he's with The Athletic and nice enough to join us. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Stuart Mandel. What's going on, Stuart? How are you, buddy? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Doing really good. We were just uh, reminiscing a little bit about uh, having you on this show since 2011. Uh, we started, you were at SI, we moved with you to Fox, and now we're with you at, at The Athletic, and we were with you at the start of The Athletic, and now as what you guys do there has grown um, because over the summer uh, you went from uh, the national coverage that you still have, obviously, uh, to expanding to having a bunch of different beats on the, uh, on the, in the college football world. Can you talk to me a little bit about the decision to add the beats and kind of where you see that growing? Because, I mean, when you, you think of college football, I mean, what, there's 118 or 19 Division One teams. Um, is that kind of the goal to have – that covered or, or where do you see kind of where do you see the the college football coverage at the athletic kind of expanding and growing what's your goals well the athletic as a whole has made it clear that their goal is by the end of the year to have somebody covering every uh, pro team uh, big four pro team in the united states and so for college football 
you know, it was a natural parallel to take that approach to covering, you know, at least at the start, the, you know, we have 19 writers. So, you know, a lot of the obvious programs you would think of first, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, et cetera, um, start there in terms of, you know, all 130 teams or whatever, not sure we're going to get there, but, you know, we do hope that this initial group performs the way we think we, they will. And in fact, you know, early in returns are exactly what we hope they would be because, Across the athletic, this model works. Um, if you hire somebody who either has an established following with the fans of that team, or even if they don't, you just know a really good writer and reporter, and uh, will deliver the quality of journalism that our subscribers expect. You know, people people sign up for it. It's um, it's a very it's a model that's you know frankly for us very familiar and comfortable. So um, really really thrilled with the group we have. But yeah, it's been. Uh, it's been a rapid expansion. We went from starting out last August with a team of seven national writers to now having uh, seven na- uh, national writers and 19 local writers. Yeah, and you know, if, let's talk about Georgia for a second because uh, growing up in Buffalo, the only baseball team I could watch every day was the Braves because uh, TBS, I could, it's a team I could follow every day. So I, I've been a, a Braves fan because of that. And I'm in a Braves chat, so sometimes the people in the Braves chat, they'll They'll uh, they'll digress and they'll talk about you know the Falcons or the or the, uh, the Bull, uh, Georgia Bulldogs, and I remember this kind of twenty four hour sequence where it's like, oh man, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to remember the writer's name and I apologize to him, but you know, oh man, so and so is not writing for for the paper anymore. There's like literally no one covering the Georgia Bulldogs beat anymore, and then within twenty four hours, it's like, mm-hmm. oh now he's at the Athletic. Wow, the Athletic is literally exclusively right now covering the Georgia Bulldogs beat. It's like as newspapers downsize, I mean, we just heard this week about the New York daily news. I mean, they went from 35 mm-hmm. people in their sports page department to nine, you know, as that downsizes, it feels like the athletic is swooping in to fill up the void. And it seems like it's brilliant. I mean, it seems like it's working brilliantly to me from the outside. Yeah. I mean, it's a combination of you. It's funny. You mentioned Georgia, Seth Emerson was That's the right. first one that we added this year. And, and he's, fantastic he's by far the authority on georgia football so you know some of it is is you know the people like that um see what we're doing and, and want to be a part of it and are willing to leave um the place that they've been in some cases for a very long time but in other cases i mean when we started we started with three writers matt fortuna uh chantal jennings and max olson who had been part of the massive layoffs at espn.com and so they were just available, which is crazy because they're three of the best college football writers in the country. And, and, and even more noticeable on college basketball where Seth Davis and Dana O'Neill and Brian Hamilton were all free agents. And so, you know, the athletic pounced. Like these are people that, that college basketball fans want to read. Um, if ESPN or Sports Illustrated, whoever can't figure out how to keep them employed, like we're going to step in and fill that void. Right, and I mean, I, Pierre LeBron in hockey is another example. Mm-hmm. You know, Richard Deitch has got to be, at this point, I mean, the most famous beat, you know, on his beat. He's got to be the top guy, you know, and he leaves. Myself, Bruce Feldman, and Ken Rosenthal were all at FoxSports.com when they just got out of the written word business <laughs> Oh, right, entirely. the pivot. The pivot and, to video, no Yeah, the pivot entirely <laughs> to video, so the athletic was more than thrilled to – you know, initially me and Ken came on board and then we were fortunate to add Bruce, um, this, this spring. So, um, 
And in, in the case, I mean, I'm totally with the athletic, but in the case of uh, Ken Rosenthal and Bruce, they're both still on Fox for TV, but they write for us and very excited to have them. Right. No, that pivot to video is an all timer. I mean, I haven't been to foxsports.com since, I don't think. And I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know anyone who has. That, that'll be, that'll go down as an all time. Like, that's like a new Coke for the, uh, sports media journalism i feel like that pivot to video i feel like actually that became the moment not the moment one of the moments when you know i think it was great timing that the athletic was pushing national at that exact time because i think it was just so bizarre and so inexplicable and, and i knew it was coming for six months and i i mean i just couldn't believe it the company was doing this and we were going to see what happened when it went national but um or when the news got out but you know i think that was a moment when if there had been any skepticism or reluctance of people like, why would I pay for sports content? I think that was a big kind of eye-opening moment of, okay, well, if I want to keep reading some of my favorite writers, you know, and, and these places are going to lay them off or, or get rid of the written word entirely, then I think, you know, three ninety nine a month is, is, a, is a price well worth paying for it. Yeah, they, I think <laughs> it was underestimated how many people read articles on the toilet in public bathrooms right i mean like i can't watch a video at the jc penny's bathroom uh when i have an emergency uh one more one more question on this uh on this and then we'll we'll talk a little college football and i'll let you go uh let's talk about you for a second so you're one of the i think you said seven or eight uh national guys right and as long as we've talked uh you've been a national guy a guy who's looking at the world of college football from a big picture um sense and you know covering you know, the top 25, the top 40, you know, the, the Bulls, the Heisman Trophy. You've been always looking at it from that, that, that big sense. And I wonder, as you've kind of settled in a year into your role at the Athletic here, has anything changed uh, about how you approach your day-to-day and what you want to do covering the space? Um, or is it, you know, how I did it at SI? I mean, you still do the mailbag, things like that, things you've done since way back to SI. Uh, so I know that things have stayed the same, but is there has it changed at all how you view your role um, in covering the sport and, and what you want to produce in, in terms of content for the athletic? Because my role is now a dual role of editor-in-chief of the site and writing, what I've done is kind of just um, focused on those signature pieces like you talked about, the mailbag, uh, the forward pass, Monday morning column during the season, um, you know, those are the things that I primarily do from a writing perspective. I don't go out and travel to as many games as I used to because, and I can do that because I've got all these other writers working with us who are going around the country and, and going to campuses and reporting, uh, great stories and great features and, you know, fully trust them to do that. I did get out in the spring and go to, um, a bunch of schools, Alabama among them and, you know, get that face time with the coaches, which is so valuable. Um, but I'm just, I'm not out on the road as much as I used to part you know, partially for the job and partially because frankly, I'm now the parent of a two and a half year old and I don't want to be on the road a hundred nights a year. So, uh, it's kind of, you know, I'm very happy with, with what the role has evolved into. My daughter was born six, 16, 16. So you probably have kids like right about the same age. Uh, six. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, mine was valentine's day 2016 so yeah so right about congratulations to, to each of us huh yeah that's that's a beautiful thing it's a I, i'm having fun i like this age right now it's one of those i i feel like when we got past zero to six months it's been 
I've been uh, really enjoying it. But uh, let's start. Uh, we can't, Obviously, I, I don't have enough time for all 130 teams, and we would hate each other by the end. But let's start real quick and look at the playoff teams from last year because I think they're all kind of interesting in their own way. Um, and start with Georgia. Georgia had a dream, their dream season, right? I mean, that's the – they had the season that the fan base had been waiting 30 years for, right? They didn't have that – they didn't have that game in November that killed them. You know, they won the SEC. They made the playoffs. They won a classic against Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl game. Their fans will never forget. And they same came so close. And, like, in the words of Dennis Green, they let Alabama off the hook. Um, they lost a lot of NFL talent, top ten guys. Um, their linebacker, I mean, they wouldn't have beat Oklahoma without him. I think he was, like, the sixth pick. Uh where does Georgia stand, and what's kind of your outlook for them in kind of a general sense? Well, Georgia as a program is just Curry Smart is building a juggernaut there. You know, mm-hmm. they just ended Alabama's run of seven straight number one recruiting classes. They had the number one recruiting class. I believe they signed the most five stars in one class that any that any program not named Alabama has. You know, I have no doubt that they will be they will be playing in more big games like that going forward. I think in terms of this year's team, it's hard to imagine they won't have at least a little bit of a drop-off because, like you said, uh, part of that run to the national championship game last season, you know, at the at the heart of it was a group of seniors like Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, uh, several defensive players who could have gone to the NFL the year before and stayed. So, um, you know, I think there's going to be a little bit of a void in leadership there. Obviously, Roquan Smith was an amazing player. They're more talented than most of the teams they'll play, um, but is it realistic that they'll head to, you know, I mean, they may get to Atlanta, but will they be right there playing for a spot in the playoff? You know, that remains to be seen. It's interesting because a lot of what you said reminds me of Oklahoma. It's like in the transition from Stoops to Riley, the recruiting has really improved. You know, it seems like the number of five stars, uh, the the level of the, the signing classes the last few years, uh, the talent that they've had in, in general has really increased. Um, and they're also in a position where, you know, Baker Mayfield was the key to the team. You know, he really was the the yep. emotional leader, you know, the leader on the field, the Heisman Trophy winner, you know, and, and he's gone. And they have this really interesting situation where they have this kid who's drafted like seventh overall in the major league baseball draft made three million dollars or four million dollars to sign there for some reason wants to stay at oklahoma and play a year but lincoln riley won't even say the kid's a starter says he's in a position battle with the sophomore quarterback it's like i just hey great for lincoln riley i guess for creating that kind of atmosphere i suppose but um what do you think of oklahoma in kind of the same sense that we went down the georgia road kind of the same deal um it's you know you just look around the country and when a team loses a player, a quarterback as important as Baker Mayfield, it's not often they there's usually some sort of drop off. Clemson kind of defied that last year after losing Deshaun Watson, and that's a credit to uh, in large part to how great their defense has been under Dabo Swinney. Oklahoma obviously, as we saw in the Rose Bowl last year, cannot count on winning games with its defense. It's got to outscore people, and I think Kyler Murray will be a good quarterback. He'll win the job. And, and he'll do a good job there. But I think you know, they've won the Big 12 three years in a row. If this is the year, if a West Virginia or a TCU or even a Kansas State wants to jump up and, and, and you know, 
knock them off their perch, this would be the year to do it. Right, and if they're going to do that, they're going to have to get them in November, though. I mean, I think the most incredible thing about these three three in a row Big 12 champions is just the way they've played in November. You know, I think they mm-hmm. even call it, like, something. I think they have a nickname for it. But, like, wow. like they've been That was, great. frankly, a hallmark of Bob Stoops' teams. They would, yeah. they would, I mean, even, they, you know, there were many cases where they lost to Texas in October. And, and oftentimes, inexplicably, you know, especially right. when Texas started to go downhill. And then they would just turn around and dominate everybody they played from there. So, um, you know, I think, I don't know what it is about that program, but they usually are built for late in the season. So Bama's Bama, right? I mean, they are down and out in the national championship game, and they're like, hold on, we have this quarterback from Hawaii waiting here. So let me put him in, and then we're going to steal this national championship from Georgia, and we're going to come back and be preseason number one almost everywhere. Uh you see any you see any kinks in the in the tide this year? Is there anything that worries you, or you think that they're a, a team we're kind of putting in dark pencil for a playoff spot? They've got a couple questions. They always do, and to this point, you know, after ten years of this, you stop doubting Nick Saban's ability to reload. So, you know, they lost their top six defensive backs. You know, all four starters at cornerback and safety. Their top nickel guy, the sixth guy that would come in, and yet. That doesn't really, frankly, worry me that all that much. I think the biggest thing with Alabama, well, two things. Obviously, how is that quarterback situation going to play out to it and Jalen Hurts? But also, and this doesn't get talked about enough, he had the biggest staff turnover he's ever had this year. Six new mm-hmm. assistant coaches, uh, new coordinators on both sides of the ball, although they uh, were promoted from within. So, you know, that's something that's hard to quantify, but you know, players have to adjust to new coaches. New coaches have to adjust to each other. Um, in some cases, a lot of these guys he hired, he had never worked with before. So I think, to me, that's the biggest um, issue, that if Alabama were to finally have their, and it will happen at some point, their 9-3 and three drop-off season, that might be one of the reasons. Is there another team in the SEC that you feel like heading in is right there with Bama and Georgia? Is there a third team on your radar, even a fourth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. I mean, Auburn on paper is, you know, they were in the SEC championship game last year. They beat both Alabama and Georgia. They have Jared Stidham coming back to maybe one of the you know, top quarterbacks in the country and in the draft next year. And a defensive line that could probably should be the, the best defensive line in the conference. So there's a lot of reasons to, to buy on buy in on Auburn this year. And I think the biggest hesitation, though, is they haven't had that consistency under Gus Malzahn. They have one great season. And then they go eight and five next year. So that's the and, and they by the way open with a game that is extremely difficult against Washington. They play Alabama and Georgia on the road this year. So it's it's hard. It's a hard path that they they're on this year. But in terms of the pieces, you know, I think they're they're right up there with Alabama and Georgia. One conference that feels really top heavy to me and seems like it's going to be a gauntlet is is the Big Ten. I mean, you have Ohio State, who's always Ohio State, right? Uh, Michigan finally maybe has a quarterback uh, for Harbaugh to play with. Wisconsin seems like they're going to be really good this year. Michigan State could be a top 15 team. This seems like we could have a lot of, you know, huge showdowns in big time on, on Saturdays in the Big Ten. Uh, do you like one or two of these teams more than the others? Is there one you're you're more dubious on? Well, I think that you've got five teams in that conference that have the, the talent to win the conference, and they all have their various question marks. 
I think Wisconsin's probably the safest bet just because they are head and shoulders above the rest of the West. They have uh, you know, the makings of a fantastic offense, which has not always been the case for them. Uh, whereas in the East, you know, you just flip a coin. Is it Ohio State? Is it right. Michigan? Is it Michigan State? Is it Penn State? I'm actually a little down on Penn State. I think they lost too much uh, on defense. It's not Saquon Barkley that worries me as much as the defensive players they lost. But any of the other three could win that division. And, yes, that does include Michigan, who, uh, you know, this is the no excuse here for Jim Harbaugh because they already have one of the best defenses in the country. And um, now they have the quarterback in Shea Patterson. So, you know, I think any of those teams can emerge from the East. Can Wa- Is Washington good enough to get the pack pack uh, time back in the playoffs? Uh, yes, they are good enough. Now, okay. what happens, though, if they lose to Auburn in the opener? Um, nobody's made the playoff starting 0-1. Um, you know, when this system started, we were led to believe that the committee would, would you know, give teams credit for scheduling tough out of conference. But to this point, uh, it's basically been whoever lost the fewest games. So, you know, if they lose that game to Auburn and then say lose one game in the Pac-12 but still win the conference, right? you know, that's that's a tough sell. We haven't had a two-loss team make it so far. Well, you know, and I feel like we had this conversation last year in terms of Oklahoma because Oklahoma the year before, you know, had the two games in their non-conference against top 15 teams, although Houston faded as the year went on. But, I mean, going into the season, I mean, they had Houston, and then they had Ohio State. And I remember us talking about, like, in the new system, it doesn't seem like there's any reason to do this anymore. You know, to me, it's like you schedule four top 50 three maybe say three top 50 to 100 teams maybe you schedule one from 25 to 30 and then you play out your conference you hope to only have one loss and that gives you the best chance to to make the playoffs is this system inadvertently killing the non-conference over the long term well first of all it's only been four years so we haven't necessarily i can't i don't think we can make any firm conclusions yet i mean certainly the first year Baylor playing a terrible non-conference schedule definitely hurt them when it came down to that last spot being between them and Ohio State. But, you know, conversely, Washington makes it two years ago over the Big Ten champion despite playing three. Nobody's out of conference. I mean, Alabama played Florida State last year. They didn't turn out to be who we thought Florida State would be. Their issue is more that their conference schedule wasn't great and they didn't make the championship game. But, you know, when teams play... 12 games and you're evaluating them, it's going to be inherently subjective. And those committee members just felt, you know, Alabama is still one of the four best teams. And then they were, they were. So, um, you know, I think every year is going to be different and there will be years where you get rewarded. I certainly think Ohio state two years ago when they got in um, without winning the division, beating Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma on the road was the deciding factor. So I don't think we can say one way or the other for sure. But a season like last year and the way that played out, you know, I'm sure if you're sitting there looking at Alabama getting in uh, with the schedule that they played, you're thinking, well, what's the, you know, what's the incentive to schedule right. tough? Yeah, I I could see still scheduling one, but there's no way I'm scheduling two tough games. You know what I mean? I'm maybe one, and that is that is absolutely it. Uh, a couple more. Is there a small conference team that you think can be in the discussion this year? Like, is a Boise State could they be good enough to? to run the table and put pressure on the committee? 
you know, obviously everybody's going to start with UCF, but I think with the coaching change there, I would be surprised if they're, you know, undefeated again. So you start with that. And yeah, I mean, I think Boise state has a chance to be a really good team this year. I think, uh, uh, Fresno State was a really, you know, had a really good season last year and should be even better. But you know, I'm I, after seeing what happened with UCF last year, I'm I was skeptical already, and now I'm extremely skeptical that a group of five team can ever make the playoff in this system because they're just holding teams very, um, you know, rigidly to strength of schedule. And uh, I mean, they never even seriously considered UCF didn't even crack their top ten. And yes, it's true. Like on the whole, they don't play the kind of schedule that the power five teams do. So uh, I just don't see how, I think you have to beat, you, know, you have to do frankly what Houston almost did a couple of years ago. They had a, you know, they crashed the system, the party the year before, then they start the next year beating Houston. I mean, sorry, beating Oklahoma, right, in they Oklahoma. beat Louisville later in the season, but they lost a couple of conference games. If that team had gone undefeated and got left out of the playoff, then nobody's ever going to make it. Um, I think that's the formula. You have to already be established because, you know, UCF kind of came out of nowhere last year. Um, and you've got to beat not just power five. I don't think it's enough just to say, oh, we beat a power five team. It's got to be a top 10 or top 15 power five team to build that kind of credibility. Yeah. And I think these are the teams that are going to find it harder and harder to get the games against those teams. Right. Right. Because I mean, like Boise State this year is playing. Uh, UConn at home, I'm not going to get much credit for that. They're playing at Oklahoma State, which could be a tough game, but I don't think um, people aren't expecting Oklahoma State to be as strong as they've been the last couple of years. And then they'll get into conference, and they'll play a Fresno State or San Diego State. But, you know, on the whole, if they go undefeated against that schedule, is it really going to um, stack up with the whoever the champions end up being out of the major conferences? No, it's not. All right, uh, two more quick ones. Do you have a sleeper team, someone we haven't talked about that you really think could be in the playoffs? Sleeper team to be in the playoffs. Um, TCU is a team that you know has very, very quietly won 11 games three of the last four years and played in the Big 12 championship game last year and just somehow still gets overlooked every year. I think that um, if their new quarterback, who's the most heralded recruit that Gary Patterson's ever signed at that position, and it turns out to be what we think he could be. They have an excellent chance at at, uh, at being that kind of team. Uh, mentioned Auburn. I don't know how much of a sleeper they are, but they're certainly uh, capable of making the playoff. And in the Pac-12, um, Washington definitely um, deserves that status as the preseason favorite. But Stanford's not going anywhere. You know, Bryce loves back. Um, they they finally have a quarterback they feel really good about in KJ Costello. And obviously they play the kind of – they play at Notre Dame. They play uh, a good San Diego State team the first week of the season. They're going to have a lot of chances to impress the committee. Do you watch Hard uh, – not Hard Knocks. Do you watch Last Chance U? Well, I have watched it in the past, but I can't say that I've seen the this current season yet. It's fascinating, right, because you, you see these names that you remember kind of, like in the back of your head, like, oh, I remember John Franklin the third. You know what I mean? Like this happens. And yeah. then I'll tell you what, this year. Dakota if, Allen's really the first one that's actually turned into a impact player. At, uh, right, at, at, in Texas Tech, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what about this Malik Henry? I know you didn't see this season, but, I mean, he was a five-star Really high up on the national recruiting, went to Florida State, 
didn't work out there. And man, I, I know you haven't seen it, but this edit does not. He did not get a favorable edit in this show. Um, well, I'm not surprised because Max Olson from our staff, from the Athletic, actually went there last season. Yeah, he's all over it. He's all over the show. He, he yeah, get, he he shows up in the yeah. in the series. Yep. And, you know, it, everything that I'm hearing is how he's portrayed in the series is exactly what Max encountered. And and <laughs> you tell me, from what I understand, like there's kind of a season long rivalry between him and the coach, and oh yeah, and neither comes off particularly well. Yeah. So, uh-huh. um, you know, that's your the JUCO players. You know, you're under the microscope. You've got to rehabilitate your image there, and obviously, he hasn't done that. Yeah, I mean, this coach comes off as just a crazy person in general. Um, <laughs> I mean, just I mean, I thought the last coach was nuts. I mean, this guy, I, I mean, he just comes off as just a, just an insane human being. And um, the weird, the the thing I'll say about Malik is that with uh, Franklin and is it DeAndre George Johnson? Who's the guy that went for to um, um, play for FAU? FAU. Yeah, DeAndre Johnson. DeAndre Johnson, yeah. Competing for the starting job now. Those two guys came off as studs on the field, whereas Malik Henry just you, – you always hear them saying, like, oh, he's the best guy I had or, you know, he's this or that, but he never flashed really. And, like, you look at his stats even, and it's like I don't think he had any 300-yard games. You know, I don't think he had any so – three... Pardon me for not knowing this, but where is Malik Henry now? I think nowhere. Yeah, I don't. Uh, as far as I, I know, he, he doesn't have it. He got interest from schools last year, and I think they all got scared off. He's a he's a fascinating case because, as far as I know, he's just nowhere. And the star of the show ends up being the running back. Uh, his name is uh, Rakeem Boyd, I believe, and he went to Arkansas. Um, I mean, and he's the guy who flashed, like having three, like literally a three hundred yard bowl game. You know, a two hundred yard game. Uh, here, a 200-yard game there, you know, a 99-yard run with, like, one second in the half where they didn't have any room to kneel. So they just hand off to him, and he makes makes into a 99-yard run. You know, he's the kid who flashed and never, uh, never, not a single scene in the whole series where you're like, eh, you know, whereas Malik Henry is like, oh, 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 you know, like, that's your reaction. To well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I've been traveling all over the place for media days this month, but I'm going to put, Last chance you on the front burner on Netflix for August. Yeah, put that in your queue, and we'll talk about him again next time because he's a fascinating case. Because as far as I know, he's nowhere. And man, I, <laughs> I mean, ooh, man, that's going to be a tough, a tough series. Of Max is going to have a follow up. Just a little tease this. He's going to have a, a follow up on Lee Henry here in the next week or so on the All American. Maybe we can exchange some some info with max and i can reach out to him and see if he'd come out and we could have some fun talking about it but yeah wow. absolutely all right so uh Stuart mandel who's a good friend of the show for a long time so i want to make sure we lay all this out really well he's at sl mandel on twitter still correct or did you change it that's correct okay so at sl mandel on twitter is where you find him and of course the athletic um it's a great app uh if you're an iphone person or an Android as well, I'm sure, but I can only speak as an iPhone person. The app is incredible. Um, it has leaped up to my number one toilet app. And also, uh, number one thing I love about The Athletic is at night, when my wife and I go to sleep, 
I can open the athletic and read for an hour in bed at my iPhone without her ever knowing I was reading. Um, I've, that's what I've loved about iBooks. That's what I've loved about um, SI on the tablet, and it transfers to the athletic where we can go to bed together at night. All the lights can be off. I can turn my body facing the wall and open the iPhone and for an hour catch up on anything I didn't read during the day. And it's one of the great sells for me, at least in terms of the athletic. Um, I couldn't do that with a newspaper. I can't bring the newspaper in bed with me um, and expect to be able to see it. Uh, also, the college football coverage has just expanded quite a bit. Uh, what's the uh, Twitter for the um, the general college football? There's a there's yeah. The Twitter handle for us is the Athletic CFB. Um, like you said, the app is fantastic. It's I think the thing people appreciate most is they've gotten so frustrated with trying to load stories on various websites and getting video. You know, I'm looking at one right now on my screen. I got a big video at the top that's slowing down the page load. We don't have any of that. So it's, it pops up. Your stories are going to load immediately. They're very clean. Um, the Athletic CFB is the Twitter handle, and we have a great promotion running right now. If you go to theathletic.com slash CFB expansion, as in college football expansion, just two ninety nine a month. And that gets you not just college football, but all coverage on the Athletic. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, if you missed that one, I was going to kind of whisper this because I didn't want Stuart to get upset with me. But if you live in, let's say you live in a city or you know someone who lives in a city and you find out, oh, so-and-so left and he's going to the athletic, that is, bells should go off that they're running a deal introducing that person. Um, I know that, that. Yep, we do deals yep. when somebody new comes on. And actually, if there are any college students listening right now, we have a um, special program for college students where they get 50% off, which is the absolute best discount uh, if they have a .edu address. Right, right. Awesome. Any other plugs you want to put out there? Anything else I didn't mention? I mean, I don't. I, that one's fantastic. Oh, well, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast and you like podcasts, and myself and Bruce do the Audible every week. Um, great college football podcast. Yeah, you guys had... Uh drifted apart for a bit and and now you guys are back thank god it's it's my number one college football podcast i listen to should have mentioned that for sure thank you all right Stuart. thanks for thanks for being with us all this time i appreciate it and i look forward to uh talking to you again and i'll send you an email um uh thank you and uh we'll see maybe if i can hook up with max too and we can talk about uh, some more about last chance you because it was a a fascinating season but uh thank you so much all right thanks steve Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering down She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank uh, Stuart Mandel for being on the podcast today always appreciate my time with Stuart. Usually in between interviews, we talk about sports books, the book club, which has been a part of this podcast literally since episode one when Jeff Passon was on to talk about the book Death to the BCS. Uh, this is where I'm at right now. We had just finished up last podcast. Jim Florentine was on. Uh, he was talking about his book. Everybody is awful except you. I have a copy of it. If you're interested, reach out to sportscasters at gmail.com. I can send you a copy. 
In a second, when I finish this very brief update, we're going to bring Ben Ryder on the show. Ben has a book out right now, number one on iTunes downloads for sports books called Astro Ball. We'll talk all about that book with Ben. And then I spoke with Jeff Perlman today, who's going to be on the podcast soon. And he has a new book coming out about the USFL. And it's a passion project of his. I spoke to the publisher, and I am going to have a copy of that book to give away. I think it comes out maybe September 1st, somewhere right around there. Uh, She said the books will be available in a few weeks, and she'll mail them out. And we'll have Jeff on again, I'm sure, in October. Uh, to talk about that book. We'll probably speak to him now, speak to him again in October. However it works out, Jeff is usually very accommodating. We'll come on any time. And uh, when he does, uh, we can talk about about that book. So, um, yeah, with that said, let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to keep this thing rolling. We're going to talk with Ben Ryder, who is a Yale kid, wrote a book about the Astros called Astro Ball. He's at SI as well. Uh, so we're going to jump into uh, into a chat with him. So we'll be right back. All right, our next guest is from New Jersey. And he is a graduate of Yale University. He's been a guest on this podcast for years, including the week after he wrote an article in SI.com predicting that the Astros would win the World Series in 2017. Today, he has a number one book on Apple Podcasts called Astro Ball. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? How you doing, buddy? Good, Steve. How are you? Congratulations on the book. I'm pumped. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, it was a crazy process getting this thing written and out, but, uh, the reception has been fantastic so far. Really gratifying to see how much people are enjoying it. So I look back today, and you were on this podcast the first week of July in 2014. Um, and your <laughs> and your cover came out, what, mid-June 2014, correct? Yeah, that was right when I was uh, public enemy number one for making right. this outrageous, controversial, hot take prediction right i just feel like i feel like it's really cool because we've kind of been been with you kind of since the the beginning because maybe i'm assuming too much but i mean if you never make that prediction and you never make that cover and you never do that story you never do this book right certainly certainly not i mean that's certainly a safe uh safe thing to assume um but look i went in there in 2014 to what was the worst baseball team over a year stretch since the early 1960s. So in half a century, um, I went in there with an open mind. That's the only thing I told the Astros. They were getting killed in all quadrants around Houston, across the country for being cynical, for being inept, for being incompetent. I said, look, I want to see what you guys are up to. Um, I went in there and I got pretty unprecedented access to any organization for a number of days. And I came away thinking that they were up to something very interesting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where that all came from. It was not supposed to be the cover that week. It was like the fifth choice at one point. Um, it was not supposed to be 
a cover with a controversial prediction on it, but that's that's how it came out, and uh, certainly that's changed my life in a lot of ways over the last four years. Now, I think it's pretty interesting, too, because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it was the year before, or but you were with them kind of following them getting ready to make a 1-1, and it was one of the ones that didn't work out, right? Yeah, well, most of their one ones didn't work out after Carlos Correa. Right, and that's uh, kind of like a Mark Appel. No, I was just to say it's a really interesting part of the story, right? Is like there's this unbelievable renaissance despite the fact that they had all these one ones and they they didn't work necessarily. That's right. I mean, of course, the one one they made that year, Brady Aiken, who they didn't sign, turned into Alex Bregman the next year. It was a, comp- a compensatory pick. So you could say that one actually worked out pretty well, as it turned out. But no, I mean, at the time, uh, when the story came out, they had not yet kind of gone through all this torment with Brady Aiken that resulted in serious embarrassment and a lot of hate being thrown at them from uh, across baseball. Uh, But look, I mean, one of the things that I wrote in that original story and has certainly proven true over the years is that they're accused of being arrogant. They're accused of being know-it-alls. Uh, that's never how they viewed themselves. They certainly had confidence in what they were doing, but their process as they designed it, it was not designed to be perfect. It was designed to give them a marginal advantage, marginally more correct decisions than their competitors. And I think from where we stand now, that's exactly what happened. Now, did you decide to write... Okay, so this is really interesting because we, we start with an article... And, and that article is sort of the seed that eventually comes out to the book that right now is number one on um, the sports book section of the iTunes. And like you said, it's been received really well. So did you decide before or after to turn the story into a book um, before or after they won the World Series? Well, look, to be quite honest, when I was there sitting in that pre-draft meeting with Jeff Luno, the GM, and Sig Meidel, his data man, and uh, Nolan Ryan and Craig Biggio, and I was seeing what they were doing and how they had come upon this innovative way of building a team that was very analytically driven, for sure, uh, the most data-driven of any organization, but went beyond that, went way beyond Moneyball, and that they brought back a source of information and valued a source of information that had long been considered passe, and that's humans human instinct, human gut, their scouts, things like character, um, to get the best out of both man and machine instead of just trusting the computer. Uh, when I saw that and how this was guiding their decision-making process, I thought, look, this seems like at least a natural successor to Moneyball, something brand new to me at least, and I think brand new to the sports world. I thought there might be a book in it then. Of course, I was realistic. Like If they turned into like the most disastrous loser <laughs> over the next five years in the history of sports – Probably no one would really care much about what they were doing. Uh, But yeah, I thought if it turned right, it could be a book. So that's one reason why I continued to report on them so much over the next few years. Of course, I was interested in what they were doing, and they had a lot of good stories coming out of there. But I certainly kept track and continued my reporting. Um, And it was really, I think it was game two, or before game three of the ALCS in New York, uh, when they'd gone up 2 nothing on the Yankees, and I was like, you know what? I, I called an agent, Chris Paris Lamb, who I'd been speaking with for the past several years about some potential book project. Um, and I said, look, I think I might have something. They probably have to win for it to really be a viable project. 
there's probably like a 35% chance right now that they're going to win the World Series. But if it happens, I think we're off to the races. And, and he agreed. And, you know, over the next two weeks or so, uh, that's what developed. That ALCS must have been just an up and down couple of weeks for your life, right? I mean, it's 2-0, you're feeling good, you're on top <laughs> yeah. of the world. Then it's 3-2 to two all of a sudden, and you got to go back to Houston. And it's like, oh, shit, did I get ahead of myself here? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, look, like, yes, I had some personal investment in it for sure. But what I learned long ago is like what I want to happen has no impact on what actually happens. Right. So I was almost like Zen-like through it. I was just covering what happened. And if it happened, it was going to happen. And it happened. You mentioned Moneyball, and it's interesting because I was thinking about this today. I I didn't get to finish the book because we kind of talked today and then, boom, we were doing this tonight. So I I got it through maybe three chapters. I read an excerpt in SI, excuse me. And I was thinking about it today a little bit, and it's like, so you mentioned Moneyball, and then Jonah Carey wrote a really interesting book called The Extra 2% on kind of what the Tampa Bay organization did to kind of rebuild themselves um, to a sort of a different degree, but you have the the Cubs Way book that Verducci wrote after the Cubs won, kind of explaining their evolution um, from you know bringing in Epstein and Madden and how they built their contender and I just wonder when you're getting ready to write this like how much of your pre your research beforehand goes into thinking about those books maybe some or none or one or two of them or something else I didn't even mention how much of your time goes into kind of seeing what they did and how they looked at this kind of like large picture topic of a baseball team and their process and where that process leads them and how much of that influenced how you then eventually started writing your book and the direction you went either the same or different or wherever that might have took you. Hopefully that made sense. Well, look, all those books you mentioned are are fantastic books by Jonah and Tom. Uh, And, of course, Moneyball. Um, It's an interesting question. I I wanted my book to certainly be on the continuum of those, but... I wanted to be different. So I didn't like dig into those to like always have them in my mind as I was writing it, that this is the next thing. Uh, I wanted it to be a, a standalone work uh, about a, a individual team that I thought represented a lot about what the direction that modern sports teams were taking and even modern organizations were taking outside of sports. Cause I think that a lot of these concepts that I dig into in the book about how to best use analytics, how to not be a slave to them, but to use them to guide your decisions, but also factoring in all the things that the numbers can't quantify. Uh, that was really kind of what I wanted the book to center on. Um, it was funny, you know, the other day someone pointed out to me a, a review in the Wall Street Journal by Dick Tofel of Moneyball back in 2003 uh, and it's obviously a positive review because Moneyball is probably the greatest sports book of all time. Certainly the one that's had the most impact, not just on fans, but on the game itself. Sure. Uh, because a lot of these guys I write about in the book would not have even gotten their jobs had Moneyball not come out then and inspired owners around sports to try to do things a different way. But, you know, that um, that review ends on a note that almost made me, like, take a short breath, you know. The last line is, you know, the players at work are still crucially not just collections of statistics. And I think that's really the evolution that Astro Ball represents from Moneyball. Moneyball is about 
all the things that statistics could reveal that humans couldn't sense, um, Astroball is, yes, they can, but humans can still sense things that statistics can't reveal. And that's really what the Astro's stroke of genius was in recognizing. And that's my absolute favorite part about what I've read so far, uh, four or five chapters in, and what I've heard about the book is that, you know, like just for me as a person who follows baseball, you know, I, I've struggled to, like, I like to talk, when I like talk, sit around and talk baseball with my friends, my whole life even, you know, it's like we talk about the games we watched and the plays we've seen. You know, did you see that home run? Did you see that play? You know, did you, you know, like that's what's always interested me. And then it seems like the last, you know, I don't know how far back I should go, 10 or 15 years, maybe since Moneyball, it seems like the conversations to a large extent, especially online, about baseball have turned into like, you know, these super ultra specific stats that they it just it seemed like it had gotten to a point where it's like you're either you're either in this group or you're out, and if you're out, you're wrong and you're you're antiquated, looking at the game wrong. And I I kind of really appreciate the Astros saying, you know, hey, there's value here, but there's still value here. And let's combine them, and at this intersection is where we think our championships can come. Can you think of any specific examples that really kind of prove that point, where maybe they, if they sure. were, if they were only Moneyball, it wouldn't have happened, but because they were Moneyball plus, it happened. Yeah, I mean that's almost what the, the, every chapter is about, and I should say that it's not just about their correct decisions. I do delve into all the mistakes they made along the way, those bad draft picks, right. perhaps their biggest mistake of all, cutting J.D. Martinez at the end of spring training in 2014, like a couple days before he became, you know, J.D. Martinez that we know now. Um, but, yeah, you know, every decision almost factors in, um, you know, human inputs in addition to the stats. Look, you have to understand data to run a winning baseball team these days. You have to have a deep grasp of it. You have to exploit it. But, you know, I agree with you to a large extent. I think baseball coverage has become too stats heavy. I mean, there's certainly a place for it, and it's very valuable. But I could do without reading, you know, a triple slash line in an article ever again. I don't think that, like, a string of nine straight digits uh, tells you very much. Um, You have to understand what they mean. But if you're the Astros, for example, here's two. One, in 2012. They picked Carlos Correa first overall. Shocking baseball for this pick. Nobody had him going that high. Maybe, you know, some teams had him like six, seven, eight, somewhere like that. Nobody had him as the 1-1. A large reason for that was because of where he came from. You know, Puerto Rico, we think of as this baseball hotbed. Roberto Clemente, you know, Edgar Martinez, Pudge Rodriguez, guys like that. Before 2012, for a long time, there were no good Puerto Rican players coming off the island for a variety of reasons that I go into. So if you're looking at things like you know statistical track records, those are not going to point you towards Carlos Correa, no matter what he did in Puerto Rico. But a big part of that pick was them getting to know him and getting to know his family. And Jeff Luna, who's actually bilingual, having grown up in Mexico, sitting down with his parents and hearing how Carlos had practiced with his dad for two hours every single night of his life, hearing how when he was eight years old, he asked them to send him to a bilingual school because they don't speak English, uh, so that when he became a baseball star, he would not be embarrassed in his interviews. You know, that was a sort of drive and grit 
and adaptability and willingness to learn that is hard to show in the numbers, but that tips that pick towards Correa, which is certainly, you know, the right pick now. Another one is that they're smart enough to know that just because you can't quantify something doesn't mean it can't exist. I think at least some years ago, a lot of, uh, you know, sabermetricians and statistically inclined people would say that something like team chemistry, like, it's so squishy. Like, yeah, it seems like it might exist, but it probably doesn't have any impact. You know, it seems like good teams have good chemistry, bad teams have bad chemistry. Is it a cause or is it an effect? I just throw it out. That's not what Jeff Luno thought at all. That was why, a big reason why, he signed Carlos Beltran at 40 years old to a $16 million contract. No team driven by data is giving a player of that age that much money, but he felt as if Beltran could bring to his young team a factor that he couldn't quantify but could prove the edge to winning. And as I get into the book, even though the guy didn't have a hit in the World Series and retired shortly thereafter, he did some very specific things behind the scenes that probably led to that ring. Right, and if someone wants to just kind of get a taste of that, that's a big part of what the the part that they ran in SI is about, is Beltron as well. Um, that's right. Yeah, so if, it, um, if you get the... Uh, I'm trying to think who's on the cover of that one. Is it the Where Are They Now issue that it was in? I was just looking at it. Yeah, it's the Where Are yeah. They Now issue. The one I actually wrote the cover story for that one as well on Sammy Sosa, uh, but it's, it's online now, so you can find it uh, on SI.com. Yeah, Um that's super cool. You know, baseball and all sports leagues is, you know, copycat, right? Like as soon as something works, you know, boom, takes off. You know, like if in, like in football, you know, oh, the Saints won a Super Bowl, building around Drew Brees and throwing 50 times or whatever. And then the next year, it's like, oh, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, you know, modeled the system or whatever. You know, in hockey, the Penguins started winning Stanley Cups with speed. So... We all, you know, the Vegas Knights, when they came in the league, one objective in the expansion draft, let's get speed. You know, in baseball, with the uh, with Moneyball, look at the uh, the evolution that that brought about when it was proven to work. Let's talk about what the Astros are doing and what you see in terms of teams trying to copy it. Who do you think is most trying to position themselves as the next Astros? Well, one of the problems for the league, at least Rob Manfred, is there's a lot of teams trying to do it, right? I mean, look at the American League. There's like three super teams. Uh, then you've got, you know, the Indians are going to win that division. And then either the A's or the Mariners are going to win the second wild card. And here we are at the end of July, like that's the playoffs because all the other teams are essentially right. in some mode of rebuilding. So, yeah, a lot of teams are trying to follow the Astros model. Um, perhaps the Padres being the one who's doing it with a similar purity and kind of assembling a similar nucleus of stars, maybe the White Sox to some degree as well. But yeah, I mean, look, it's a lot harder to do it when everybody's trying to do it, right? Like when the Astros were following this route, they were the only ones, at least doing it to this degree. Like I know the Cubs kind of went through a somewhat similar thing. They've never plumbed the depths that the Astros did. But look, the Astros are already very far ahead of that, and they're built not just to win once, but to be sustainable. They're much better this year than they were last year, and there's no kind of like drop-off in sight as far as losing a great swath of their players at any point, which was part of the plan all along. So they're going to continue to put their advantage. They already have a winner, push their advantage, I should say. They already have a winner in place, and they're continuing to find the bleeding edge, as they call it, of uh, innovation. Some of that's statistical, but a lot of it is, as we said, you know, kind of 
helping the people that you have on board get better. And they have all sorts of technology that can help them do that. They have blast motion, which they attach to bats, which can instantly give you feedback as far as your launch angle and the shape of your swing and stuff like that. Um, you know, a, a analyst for the Indiana Pacers actually emailed me the other day saying that he'd read the book and he was particularly interested in the idea of team chemistry as related to Beltron, that chapter, which is chapter seven in the book, I believe. Uh, he called it the holy grail right now for teams looking to win, looking to get that edge. Um, I'd say probably, you know, injury prevention being the other one, but rest assured the Astros are on the forefront of those things as well. Super cool. Yeah, you know, the, the Saints are an example, too, of a team that, you know, three or four years ago just said, like, we're going to put a huge emphasis on character now. You know, we are going to mm -hmm. get good guys in the locker room. And it seems like it's kind of paying off now. And hopefully, at least for me as a big Saints fan, hopefully the end of the Breeze and Peyton era here will work. Um, I want to ask you about Verlander. Um, is, mm -hmm. is the acquisition of Verlander an example of setting aside the statistics a little bit and go like did they how big of a risk in terms of what they were looking at on paper was justin verlander i think it's a an example of uh leaning towards your gut essentially to make the call like they had all sorts of conflicting signals as far as verlander as i get into uh in the chapter that's almost like a tick tock of the trade deadline where they ended up getting him to sign away his no trade clause with two seconds right. before the deadline. Yeah. That's how, that, that's how close it was. Like, look, I mean, he was not for most of last season, the pitcher that he had been, he, he was very bad for the first half of the season. Um, he'd had a very good month. It seems as if he'd figured something out uh, in August, but there are a whole lot of other factors going into this. Like a lot of their probabilistic models, suggested, you know, hell no, you do not trade, if you're us or any team, three strong prospects, including one, Franklin Perez, who's, you know, like a top 50 pitcher, uh, for a 35-year-old guy making $20 million a year who you're only going to have for two and a half years. Uh, that, you know, if you're going by the data alone, you probably wouldn't have done it. But there were other factors. You know, there's this idea that maybe he had figured something out, which he had. And there's also just, you know, things that were going on with the team. They'd just gone through Hurricane Harvey. The owner was telling Luno, look, we got to do something here. There was the fact that the players weren't exactly revolting, but they were openly unhappy about the fact that Luno had not done anything at the regular trade deadline on July 31st. Dallas Keuchel actually came out and publicly criticized the front office for their inaction. There was the fact that the Astros was actually playing horribly last August, so perhaps their need was greater august 31st and it was july 31st all those things you know those are not things that you can put into a computer and get an output but those certainly tilted the decision toward pulling the trigger and look the proof's in the pudding yeah that one's looking great uh right now for sure the sports guests are here with ben Ryder from uh, si his book astro ball is blazing the charts number one right before we got on here in the sports ebook section i picked one up today to uh to prep for this and, and read as much as I could before Ben and I talk. It's also obviously available on Amazon and, and wherever you buy books. And Ben, there's a way that people can reach out and order one that you'll sign, correct? Yes. Uh, let me see. I think it's 800ceoread.com. Uh, you can sign, uh, you can order a copy that I have signed on a book plate. 
Uh, let me ask you real quick uh, one or two last things, and I'll let you go. Um, what What about the process post July tenth has surprised you the most? Like the book comes out, and obviously you know you're going to be talking to schmucks like me on podcasts. You're going to be doing a tons of radio hits. <laughs> you know you're going to be on Mad Dog Show or whatever. Like you kind of see that stuff coming. Has there been anything? Uh, that surprised you the most post July 10th about being a published author and having this book that you're now going around and promoting? Um, just really, uh, just how fun the interactions with readers are. I mean, I didn't know what to expect, you know, like you kind of sit here in your office for actually not that long writing a book for me, it was about it was about 10 weeks to pump out a draft because we knew we had to get it out really fast. Um, but, you know, you sit here every night writing and, you know, talking to sources and reporting, and you don't know how it's going to be received. And just the fact that people have just been so warm and excited about it. You know, I did my reading, my first reading down at a bookstore called Brazos in Houston. Um, you know, I figured that, you know, Houston people will probably be pretty into this story. Uh, it turned out that the bookstore sold out of the book before I even got there to do my, my reading, uh, just the, the warmth and the excitement and the enthusiasm people have for the story in the book. I mean, it's been more frankly than I probably could have dreamed. And was that the thing that you did with Chris Stone or was that something that was a different one, right? In New York or something like that. Yeah, that was, that was the first one that I just mentioned. Oh, okay. Um, That was that one. Monday, on Monday, I did an appearance at what, what's my local bookstore. It happens to be one of the great bookstores in the world in New York, The Strand, uh, with the editorial director of SI, Chris Stone, in conversation with him. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, there are like 200 people there, uh, a lot of friends, of course. I certainly had a strong home field advantage. But, you know, just a lot of people I didn't know who knew about the story, maybe from the prediction, maybe from reading reviews of the book, maybe they're Houstonites or Houstonians, I should say, who transferred or to move to New York, um, and, and there too. I mean, it, it, it's it's just been really, really gratifying. Uh, you know, writing is a lonely process, and when you get something out into the world and have it received like this, uh, can't say it any other, any other way than it feels great. It's funny you're talking about reviews, and I was looking, I was looking at the uh, the uh, Apple. What are the, I don't know what the hell they call the books part. I guess it's just iTunes, right? And you buy a book iBooks? on there. I was looking at that. It's like iBooks. iBooks. Okay, that's fair. There's, so there's 14 ratings, right? You have 12 five-star ratings, one four-star rating. It's like, all right, maybe one guy just felt four-star. Fair enough. Then there's one one-star rating. I'm like, oh, come on, Yankees fan or Dodgers fan. That's pissed off that they lost. <laughs> you, you know you didn't read the book. You're giving it one star. What a douche. But um... <laughs> I didn't even, thanks for bringing that to my attention. I didn't even know that. All I know is that all the reviews on Amazon so far have been five stars. So I guess maybe no, no Yankee fans have gotten there yet. Yeah, the Yankees fans are on uh, – on Apple, not Amazon, I guess. But um, yeah, because I mean, there's no writing to support this. This, you know, this rating. It's just you know, someone just came on to be a dick. But uh, all right. Last thing, I'll get you out of here on this, and it's because it's something we've talked about since we started our partnership, friendship, partnership, whatever you call someone who comes on your podcast. Uh, we talked about we're you. friends, Steve. Okay. At this point, <laughs> I feel that way. I feel like you're one of the guys I can text and not worry about it coming back like why are you using my number or something like that you know so uh so we've always talked about you being a yell guy right because my brother was there when we first started talking and 
Uh, we were actually at a hockey mm-hmm. game together, but I ended up like on the first floor, and you were on the third dead phone, something like that. But <laughs> that's right. Uh, I want to ask you to just end because maybe it's interesting and maybe it'll bomb, maybe it won't be. But what about being a Yale guy, you know, is reflected in this book? What about being someone who is educated at Yale, do you think, makes your book uh, different than, I'm trying to think, than, say, uh, Jeff Perlman who went to Delaware and his books, not in like a cocky Ivy League way, just like, is there anything do you think specific to your education is shaped in this book? And then uh, piggybacking on that, I know you have an event at Yale too um, to promote, promote the book and maybe a, a word to plug that and how excited you are to uh, to go to New Haven to to promote this as well. Well, I think you're asking me an impossible question. It's very hard to uh, kind of self-analyze yourself like that, I think. I mean, look, all I knew is that I had this, you know, incredible opportunity based on the way that the story had developed in a way totally out of my control to tell a story that I thought could shed light not just on how the most modern of sports organizations operates from deep within it as I was for so long with such access, um, but also to show how this, what this says about the modern world, about how decisions are made, not just in sports, but in all industries, about how the Astro success could provide a proof of concept or a model, actually, for people who are struggling with data and analytics and artificial intelligence and are maybe even a bit uh, concerned about it, uh, how these things should be used as a tool and not something that's going to replace the value or the position of human beings. So that was really just my goal, and that's the story that I wanted to tell, and I think that's the story that I did tell. Um, having said that, it certainly will be exciting to go back up to uh, New Haven uh, in September, I believe. I, I should ha- Oh, it's September 20th at 6 p.m. at the Yale Bookstore. Uh, to see some people up there. It'll be interesting to be at a place where you used to buy textbooks that you didn't need, uh, and now you'll be there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe people will buy a sports book they don't need. They don't need, <laughs> right, exactly. Look, just, yeah, that's where I was... I, again, I'm, I'm, just hoping, I'm just hoping that, uh, that people show up, and, you know, that'd be great. Um, I, I, I wonder if, if this was in, a, in Back to the Future, and... And we could go back and we say to Chris Stone or whoever makes a final decision, you know what? Let's not go with the Astros cover. Let's go. Let's go with whatever one of the other five was. I wonder how the story's different. You know, it, it's it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting vari- variable in this book because you know sometimes you get a guy like we. The last author I interviewed on this show is Jim Florentine, right? Who wrote a book, basically, that is his podcast on paper where he rants and raves about the stupid things people post on Facebook. It's hilarious, but you know, it, it, this, this is more based on like just this, such a random like world event that happened. And then to see it all play out, it's been really fun to, to follow it with you each course of the way. And uh, I'm really excited about how popular it's been and how well it's been received. And I thank you for your time tonight. Again, uh, you can follow Ben on Twitter, um, for information there, Ben, it's, uh, just Ben underscore R-E-I-T-E-R. Is that right? Um, I think it's actually just B-E-N-R-E-I-T-E-R with no space on Twitter. Okay. Yep, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, ben Writer, straight up on Twitter. 
Um, and if you're listening to this, I'll tweet it out and it'll be like, you know, in there, you can just click on it if you're not following Ben yet. And also, uh, like I said, the books available at Amazon and Apple, where there's that one Yankee fan who gave it one star. And, um, maybe he thought, maybe he thought one star was the best. Why don't we go with that? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. Have fun out on the road with this and, um, I'll catch up with you like post world series or something. And we can reflect on this a little bit more when things calm down. Yeah, we'll talk about how the Astros won it all again. Again, yeah, the dynasty. All right, buddy. Thanks, Steve. I want to thank Ben Ryder for being on the podcast. I also want to thank Stuart Mandel for being on the show. Let's get some plugs out of the way real quick. Uh, the Sportscasters can be found on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Uh, if you tweet to that account, it's uh, it's it's me. We don't have a social media department here, surprisingly. Uh, you can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, and you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, and on Stitcher. If there's anywhere that you would like to hear the Sportscasters podcast and cannot, uh, please reach out, and I will try to work on bridging that gap and bringing the show to whatever platform it is that we are not accommodating. Again, I do have a copy of Jim Florentine's book, Everybody is Awful Except You, and if you would like a copy of that book, Please, by all means, uh, reach out to sportscasters at gmail.com. I am currently spending many of my free minutes uh, watching SummerSlams in anticipation of doing an Adams Division podcast with my friend Peter Winson of Greetings from Allentown podcast, uh, where we are going to rank SummerSlams 88 to 98, so the first 11 SummerSlams. Uh, Peter is a friend from Boston who has an amazing podcast called Greetings from Allentown at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Uh, Greetings from Allentown Pod at gmail.com, I believe. And he and I have done two podcasts together so far. Uh, we did a top 100. I did a top 100 WWFE wrestler list for the uh, website place to be nation. And we kind of did a podcast looking at that list and he kind of critiqued it and needled me a little bit. And we had a lot of fun with that. And uh, also we did a podcast around WrestleMania season where we ranked WrestleMania's one to 14. Uh, and that was a lot of fun as well. Peter and I have a lot of fun uh, doing these together. We're going to try to do one once a quarter or so, and we're going to do one sometime in August uh, that will be on SummerSlams 88 to 98. In the meantime, please check out his podcast at um, Greetings from Allentown Pod. Uh, also, the Place to Be Nation, uh, they have a um, a contest right now, the greatest 
songs of the 80s. They have like 600 songs, and you vote for 5 out of 10 in different groups each day. It's really fun. If you're interested in that, check out placetobenation.com for more information. All right. With that said, one last thing. So I am talking today on Thursday, Thursday around 5 o'clock. And on Monday, I almost lost my mother. My mother is 59 years old. I believe she was born in 1959, October of 1959. And uh, going into Monday, my brother is having a hockey school called Two Fast Guys, twofastguys.com. It's going on this week. And going into Monday, it was my understanding that my mother was going to be there at the rink with him, checking in the players and serving lunch and uh, taking care of some things for my brother. And my mother-in-law is off this week, so my daughter was going to be planning on spending kind of the days with her. And she actually slept over on Sunday into Monday. So my wife got up and went to work and left the house around 7 o'clock in the morning, and I kind of slept through that. And I woke up around 7.45, and my phone was blown up. I had text messages and missed calls. And my first thought was that, um, one of our grandparents is, is very old and, and sort of passing away to some degree. And I, I figured that all, oh, you know, that must've been it. And then I start reading these messages and, and they're like, uh, the first one's for my brother. And he says, you know, mom, she passed out and, um, and the ambulance came and they took her in the ambulance. So I'm thinking that that happened at the rink. And then my other brother is like, you know, oh, mom is getting a CAT scan and they might be taking her into surgery. And I have a voicemail from my stepfather that's, you know, saying the same thing. So I'm just trying to process all this, you know, wiping the sleepies out of my eyes and figure out what the hell is going on with my mother. So it turns out that she had passed out at home. Um, they called the ambulance. Her blood pressure was like 60 over 40. She was in a lot of pain. So they rushed her to Mercy Hospital. And the blood pressure was super low. They're real concerned. They did a CAT scan, and they they knew something was wrong in the bowel area, so they took her into surgery. You know, by nine thirty that morning, my mother was in surgery. Um, and it turned out to be her cecum, which is something that I've had removed. And I guess it was twisted, and they fixed it and sewed her up. And then when she got out of surgery, her blood pressure was dangerously low again and they thought she was septic so she got moved into the ICU and it was it was all really scary by about four o'clock that day it kind of got to the point where you were pretty sure she had gotten through the worst of it and that um you know she was going to recover you know I I was there with my brother Anthony and and the doctor came in and he kind of explained everything to me and it was and, and you know he had said you know we expected to find a little bit more so we're going to keep looking to make sure there isn't anything else but as of right now it was just that that bowel twist and we fixed that and um, you know we're going to uh, we're going to keep keep working on her making sure there's nothing else but if there isn't you know, she's going to make a full recovery. And kind of since then, now it's Thursday. You know, she's not in the ICU anymore. She was on a ventilator. She's not on that. 
You know, the only thing hooked up to her right now is just a standard IV. She's really sore. She's getting pain meds, but, you know, she's rebounding. She's getting antibiotics, things like that. So she's she's through the worst of it. She's on the road to recovery. And she's going to be fine. But Monday at 9.30 in the morning was the first time I ever even thought about the idea that I wouldn't have a mother anymore. You know, and look at the reality is I'm probably lucky. I'm going to be turned 38 years old. I've had a mother for 38 years. She's always been there for me through everything. She's been a great mother. Great mother. And a lot of people, they never meet their mother or their mother dies when they're young or when they're 18 or whatever. But it's not... Look at Having your mother is something to easily take for granted. I'm going to be honest. It's really easy to assume your mother is always going to be there. Like that's really easy to do. Really easy to do. And when you're faced with the idea that she might not be there, then you start to think. Right? Did I tell her everything I'd want to tell her? Did I do enough? Did I let her see my daughter enough? Did I take her to that restaurant I always promised? Whatever. You know, and inevitably in that situation, you're going to find something to beat yourself up on. God, why didn't I ever take her to Mulberry's for meatballs? I'm a fucking idiot, you know? So that's real easy to do. And, you know, being an older brother, also, I immediately just start thinking, like, how are my brothers? What do they need? What do I need to say to them? How are they handling it? And I think sometimes that that maybe is a little bit of a defense mechanism for me. You know, if I'm taking care of them, I don't have to deal with anything myself. Even with my own illness, I I think a lot of times I've justified it as a positive. Well, if I have this, they don't have it. I can handle this. And I don't know if that's okay or wrong. I have no idea. But man, what a wake-up call on a Monday morning. What a thing to have to deal with to think, oh my God, is today the day I don't have a mother anymore? And you find out really quick you're not ready. You're not ready to lose your mother. And I probably never will be. But I'm glad it didn't happen this week. You know, there's friends and family that reached out to me and you know, said, we're thinking of your mom and we're praying for your mom, my dad, my grandmother. So I appreciate that. I appreciate them. And I appreciate my stepfather for being so alert when she went down and getting her to the hospital as quick as possible. And to my brothers, you know, being there for each other. You know, and it's nice to have a little experience to be in there and to know what's going on a little bit and to be able to help your mother and advocate for her in terms of her pain and things like that. So I did kind of feel like I had a little bit of value in that, and that was that was nice. But man, it was a scary week. A really scary way, way to start the week. But luckily, she's fine. She's on her way to improved health. And I guess the message is just, you know, if you got good people, love them while they're here, right? Because on Sunday, my mother spent the whole day shopping and planning to be at my brother's 
hockey camp all week, and she's not going to spend one minute there. So it can it can change that quick, right? So um, you know, if you got good people, uh, maybe even if they're not that great, uh, try to find a way to love them while they're here. And um, I know I love my mom. And uh, it'd be a lot of different podcast today if, if things went different. So I'm glad they didn't. Thanks to everyone who listened to me kind of go over everything in the beginning. And, uh, you know, talk more here at the end. Thanks for being a fan. And uh, we'll be back next week or very soon.